Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Polymath. I'm your host, Toby Gagnon, and on this episode, I would like to discuss remembering Pearl Harbor 80 years later. Let's go ahead and get things started. Most of us are taught in school about the tragedy at Pearl Harbor in 1941 and World War II, but only at a surface level. This episode will not be diving into detail about the tragedies that befell the men and women that day, but instead looking into the history of the base, a timeline of the events, the damage that it caused, America's response, the world's response, the repairing and rebuilding, and the remembrance we still have today. First, let's dig into why we even had a naval base at Pearl Harbor in 1941, since Hawaii didn't officially become a recognized state until August 21st, 1959. Beginning in 1912, there were submarines that were ordered to patrol the Pacific Ocean, and it was decided that they would be based out of Pier 5, Honolulu. This is known as the Old Naval Station. However, in 1915, one of these submarines sank accidentally, and the remaining F-class submarines were ordered to be towed back to the mainland for safety. However, following the end of World War I, two R-class submarines were ordered to the Hawaiian Islands to establish a submarine base. The area chosen was desolate, and construction soon began. By 1923, the first permanent building was erected, and construction continued at a fast pace through the times of relative peace. The first commanding officer at the new submarine base was none other than Commander Chester W. Nimitz, who later became Fleet Admiral. If that name sounds familiar, it should. On May 3, 1975, the United States launched the USS Nimitz, which was the lead ship of the Nimitz-class nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. The submarine base was only a small part of the efforts on the Hawaiian island of Kaua. During the same time the submarine base was being developed, construction also was going on for establishment and growth of a naval air station, a fleet air base, and a minecraft base. To gain a better understanding of the attack, I'd like to take you through the timeline of events on the morning of December 7, 1941. At 3.42 a.m., the minesweeper USS Condor spots a midget submarine outside of the harbor and alerts the destroyer, the USS Ward. At 6.37 a.m., the USS Ward fires the first shots of the battle, sinking the midget submarine. It is unknown if this is the same that is spotted by the USS Condor, as five were deployed to torpedo U.S. ships once the attack started. At 7.02 a.m., Japanese bomber planes are spotted on the radar, but mistakenly presumed to be the arrival of six B-17 bombers. At 7.55 a.m., the first Japanese bomber plane is spotted with the naked eye and drops the first bomb, prompting the now-famous air raid on Pearl Harbor. This is not a drill radio message. At 8.10 a.m., the USS Arizona is hit by an armor-piercing bomb and sinks only nine minutes later. At 8.50 a.m., the second wave of the Japanese attack arrives, and by 9.03 a.m., the Japanese attack forces withdraw. The first wave of the attacks consisted of 183 Japanese aircraft divided into three groups and targeted the aircraft and airfields on the islands, as well as the U.S. ships docked and moored as a means to prevent the U.S. personnel from fighting back. Additionally, the Japanese sent in the slow bombers first, followed by the faster and more maneuverable aircraft to protect them from U.S. aircraft that did manage to get airborne. The second wave consisted of 167 aircraft, again divided into three groups, and targeted the aircraft hangars across the islands as well as Pearl Harbor proper. Though the attack was not long in duration, when it was done, it left the following in damage. 
2,386 people were killed, including 55 civilians. 1,139 people were wounded. 18 ships had been sunk. 343 aircraft had been destroyed or damaged. And 24 PBYs were destroyed. This marked the largest loss of life on the United States soil for a single event until the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Interestingly, the Japanese chose not to attack the submarine base on the island that I discussed earlier. This proved to be a mistake, as that base served to treat those who were wounded, as well as perform repairs on the assets that were damaged, including ships and aircraft. Which brings me to my next point. Of the 18 ships that were sunk during that attack, only three were damaged beyond repair, including the Arizona, the Oklahoma, and the Utah. The rest were raised from the bottom as a process called floating, repaired, and returned to active service during the war. Even the Arizona and Oklahoma had parts salvaged from them to be used on other vessels. In the end, it was the U.S. Navy's submarines that helped win the war as they crippled the transportation of oil and raw materials to and from the Japanese. Oh, and let's not forget Hypo, which was a crypto-analytic group that was housed in the basement of the administrative building on that submarine base. So how was this viewed throughout the world, and how did the U.S. react? Well, because the attacks were done without a declaration of war from Japan to the United States, they were determined to be a war crime at the Tokyo Trials, which is also known as the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, or IMTFE for short, or the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, which adjourned on November 12, 1948. In fact, Japan did not declare war on the United States until December 8th. 1941, and the information was not delivered until the day after that, December 9th. On December 8th, 1941, the United States Congress, following the Day That Will Live in Infamy speech by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, passed a declaration of war on Japan. The Senate passed the declaration with a vote of 82 to 0, and the House passed it 388 to 1. The sole no vote came from Jeanette Rankin, a Republican from Montana and a devout pacifist. While publicly shunned and attacked for this, she was quoted as saying, As a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send anyone else. The declaration was signed by President Roosevelt at 4.10 p.m. that same day. Britain also declared war on December 8th as they learned that parts of their territories had also been attacked. On December 11, 1941, Germany and Italy also declared war on the United States, though they were not under any obligation to do so through the Tripartite Act. As a result, the United States also declared war on Germany and Italy. This time, Representative Rankin chose to abstain from voting. As a direct result of the United States' entry into World War II, this event is just one on a timeline of events that led to the use of the atomic bomb on August 6, 1945 on Hiroshima, which killed 80,000 and injured another 35,000, and again on August 8, 1945 on Nagasaki. As with most things, the American people, including the Senate, the House, and the armed services, wanted someone to blame for allowing this attack to happen. Unfortunately, they turned their sights on two men— Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter C. Short. They were accused of withholding knowledge and failing to act and ultimately found guilty. However, in 1999, the Senate posthumously exonerated them of all wrongdoing, saying they acted accordingly given the information they had available to them at the time. 
While most of us know the memorial dedicated to the USS Arizona, few know it nearly never existed. In fact, before it opened on May 30th, 1962, it faced multiple setbacks, including funding. Many fundraisers were done to ensure the project would see completion, but one of the most famous was a concert that was performed by Elvis Presley on March 26, 1961. Every ticket sale went directly to funding the memorial thousands visit each year. I'll close with this final piece of information I came across while doing my research for this episode, and it's this. Service members who survived the attacks on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, have the option of having their remains laid to rest alongside their friends and brothers who perished that day. In fact, members who served on the USS Arizona or the USS Utah can be interred inside those ships, which are the only ones that still lay at the bottom of the harbor. Members who did not serve on those vessels but survived that day can still be laid to rest at the bottom of the harbor in a ceremony that can only be described as beautiful. To quote FDR himself in his address to Congress on December 8, 1941, No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people, in their righteous might, will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. Let us never forget the tragedies that befell our nation on December 7th, 1941. Let us never forget those lives that were lost. Let us never forget the acts of desperation and heroism. Let us never forget. So that about wraps up this episode, but I would encourage you to do your own continued research and education. I'll make sure to link to the things that I discussed in this episode in the show notes. On the next episode, I will be discussing Christmas traditions. If you have any feedback, feel free to send me an email at podcast at therenpo.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-N-P-O.com. I would also appreciate it if you left a review wherever you podcast. That helps this show be discoverable to others and helps me understand where things can be improved. Don't forget to subscribe and auto-download new episodes so you don't miss any of the future topics. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode. 